Now in this time, we're going to hear the reading of God's Word um, this morning. Again, Epiphany Sunday, so our text is Matthew chapter 2. Good morning. Um, as Stephen said, the reading is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, I was going to tell you that the page in the Bible is page 757 in your pew Bible, or um, it's also printed in the bulletin. I think it's up there. Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Thank you for that reading, Alan. And like I've said a couple of times this morning, this is Epiphany Sunday, so um, this marks the the Magi's trip to visit Jesus, which... um, Contrary to popular opinion, it was not on the night that Jesus was born, but was some days later. And so that's why all the Christmas decorations have come down except for the nativity, because the wise men still visited Jesus um, sometime later. But just to get started this morning, I want to give a, a, both a mental picture, but also a physical picture on the screen of Almy's clock in downtown Salem. So... Um, Brian, if you could go, I think it's, yeah, there it is. 
Almy's Clock, downtown Salem, on the pedestrian walkway. Um, some of you have lived in Salem long enough. Yeah, well, I think the picture on the left is 1910, so I don't think any of you were there for that, um, but you were there to remember Almy's. Um, but just this past year, the Almy's clock was restored to its, um, it's close to its original condition. And so I was reading about this recently. There was an article that was put out, I think in the Salem News, that was talking about it. And they talk about this huge undertaking to restore Almy's clock, which was installed in 1910 um, by the Almy, Bigelow, and Washburn department store, which was a mainstay of the Salem business scene on Essex Street from 1858 to 1985. So most of you uh, that have lived in Salem for a little while maybe would remember when the store was in existence. Um, but however, the, the 100-year-old clock, I guess, had fallen into to disrepair and was not working for a while. Um, some of the things were replaced over time, but it just never really was put back into its full status until recently, um, which in, in March 2021, the Electric Time Company carefully removed the clock structure from the surrounding concrete and brick paving, transported it to their restoration facility for disassembly. Cast iron sections were sandblasted, repaired as needed, and repainted through a four-coat process for long-term durability. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff here, I guess, of how they restored the clock, which may fascinate you, but probably not super relevant to what I'm trying to get at. Um, but long story short, just a few months ago, they were able to fully restore it and put it back in its place um, where it's meant to be. One thing that did, that did catch my attention, though, to this is, is just the city of Salem's connection to the clock and to things like the clock. I mean, Salem is a historical city. So there's a lot of landmarks of things that used to be that people kind of have some memory of and want to find a connection to today. But this is what they said in the article. They said, the Almy's clock is a beloved community landmark in downtown Salem. In addition to providing time, the clock serves as the last remaining vestige from one of Salem's largest department stores and is a visual reminder of downtown Salem's 20th century role as the commercial hub of the North Shore. And it talks about all the memories that people have had of this clock and what it symbolizes in downtown Salem. Now, all that to say, our churches destined for the same type of legacy as something like Almy's clock. Something that used to be something that made a deep connection with folks, where they have a deep memory of something that used to be for them, but now is mostly just a facade pointing to what used to be, even though there's not anything currently. If you look around the Western world or the United States or even particularly New England, some folks would say that churches are not all that different from something like Almy's clock. Will churches simply be remembered as relics of nostalgia from a bygone era, places to take pictures and remember and to only be used for the most utilitarian purposes only, like prayer in time of great tragedy or 
if you have a funeral need or if you want to get married in a pretty building, is that all that churches really are anymore? I'm preaching to the choir, I know, because you guys are here on a Sunday morning. I would assume you would say no because you've chosen to be here for an hour on a Sunday morning. But in the wider scheme, I think some folks would say that might be the case. You and I hope for a deeper purpose, but what is that deeper purpose? And a day like Epiphany Sunday, where we look at the Magi and their trip to visit Jesus, give us some kind of inclination and some kind of hint as to what is the purpose of gathering together weekly, year after year, generation after generation. What are we doing when we come together as a community? The Magi came into the house of Mary and Joseph, it said. They came into his house and they saw Jesus and they fell and worshipped him, is what it says. And so as we look at this text this morning, we similarly come into this house, which sometimes is referred to as God's house, although it's really just a building that we fill with God's presence when we come together. But we come to his house similarly so that we can see him, so that we can fall down. And so we can worship him. That is the purpose of what we've come to do, to seek him, to see him, and to give to him. And so there's something powerful in this text, not only about a star and about the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which we sang about earlier, and not just about the long trek from the east to come on camels to visit Jesus, but there's something more in this text about worship, about what does it mean to worship the living God. And so, I don't know if you remember this. I barely remembered it because a lot lot of things happen in a year. But I preached on this exact same text this time last year. On Epiphany Sunday, we looked at Matthew 2. And I imagine next year we'll probably preach on Matthew 2. And then the next year we'll probably preach on Matthew 2. Because it's, what better way to start a new year than to just remind ourselves the purpose of the church, which is to worship to worship, and then to actually remember what it means to worship and to learn together what worship is. (coughs) And so the the word worship is mentioned three times in these 12 verses. Once in verse 2, which is saying, you know, we saw the star and we've come to worship him. The other time is in verse 8, when Herod is saying, go search for the kid, Jesus, so that I too may come to worship him which is a little bit not true. I think we kind of can intuit that. And then in verse 11, when the Magi actually make it to the house, it says they see him and they worship him. And so this morning, we're going to be kind of looking at the theme of worship reimagined. You know what? Let's take this Sunday to just zero in on on the idea of worship and reimagine for ourselves. Let our creativity come back on what it means to worship Jesus together. And so to do that, I'm going to kind of look at it in two waves, kind of centering around the word assumptions. What are some of the assumptions we have about what worship is and what actually really is worship? So that's kind of the twofold. We're going to look at some assumptions of worship and then hopefully from this text, what true worship is aside from our, our simple assumptions. So I'm going to give you four assumptions that maybe some, that sometimes sneak into our, our mind or our heart about the nature of worship that we can learn from this text. 
So we're going to be looking the first couple of verses here. Um, assumption number one, looking at verses one and two. Assumption number one about worship is that you have to be something in advance before worshiping. Sometimes we convince ourselves that before we come to a church building, for instance, or before we sing praises to God, or before we engage in the act of worship, that we need to we need become something before. We need to get our act together. We need to to stop some kind of addictive habit, or we need to, to dress ourselves up, or, or to get clean, and then we can come to worship. And that's, as again, like all four of these things I'm about to mention, that's a false assumption. Look at the Magi. And again, if you're from the text that Alan read, actually, in the English Standard Version, they're actually called wise men, which is probably common. You've probably heard that phrase, too. Um, but who were the wise men? Who were the magi? Were they uh, Jewish worshipers of God who, who knew the Bible and who had been coming to worship him for many years and then they just decided to do this extra thing because the Messiah had come? No, quite the contrary. The magi were pagan, meaning they worshipped gods in the east They came from the east where they had their own gods that they worshipped. So they were pagan. They were Gentiles. So they certainly were not Jewish. They probably had zero understanding of the Torah or the stories of Moses or Abraham or Isaac and Jacob. And they were stargazers. They were astrologists. These were guys that studied the skies and looked for signs and looked for like almost like modern day horoscope kind of readers. They were, these were people who were engaged in the sciences looking for meaning and purpose in their own stuff. They were not looking for meaning and purpose in the God of Israel or Yahweh. But these were guys who were as far from cleaned up, put together, you know, ready to worship kind of people. These were almost the complete opposite of that. These do not sound like people who had the intention of coming to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that they had heard about in the scriptures because they probably had never heard the scriptures. They didn't, they weren't Jewish religious leaders. They weren't residents in Jerusalem. They weren't people who had been passed down the great stories from the Exodus or anything. So why would they come to worship then? Why would they come to worship Jesus? And this is where the story is a little surprising for us, because if someone were to tell you this in the modern day, you probably would look at them a little strangely. But these three people came to worship. Well, it actually doesn't even say there were three necessarily. There could have been a different number. But why did these people come to worship? Because they saw a star in the sky. God showed them a star. Which, think about it, it was actually something that they knew about pretty well. They actually were experts in stars, right? They actually knew about things about astrology and astronomy. So they actually were looking at the sky quite a bit. So they would have been actually the best people to notice something different in the sky. Like, I was thinking about this. My, my oldest daughter got a telescope for Christmas. So we've, we've looked at the stars and the moon a little bit more recently. Although there's been a lot of cloudy nights, actually. So we've had a few non-cloudy nights, and we've looked at the stars. But I couldn't tell you when there's a star out of place 
or when there's like a new great something. Maybe if there's a really bright moon, I could tell a difference. But the Magi knew the sky so well that they actually would have been the perfect people to recognize a star like this in the sky. It intrigued them. It caused curiosity. But more so, they were able to, on a heart level, receive it as a revelation from God. That not just is like, oh, there's a new star in the sky, but God is actually directing us to to do something as a result of seeing this star. You know, it was something unique that they could understand uniquely from their own background and experience in life, from their own expertise. And just a, it's a good reminder for us that you never know how God is going to use something in your own life that you've studied, you're an expert in, you love, you have a passion for. God sometimes uses just those things so that you can see something about himself that maybe someone else would have missed. It's just a great reminder of the uniqueness of how God um, both creates us and how he calls us through some of those things. And so God called them. It didn't matter that they weren't God-fearers at the time because God loves all people. He didn't tell them to, to not worship their pagan gods before coming to worship Jesus. They came as they were, seemingly, and they just followed the star. You don't have to change in advance of coming to worship. So that's the first assumption that we're crashing down. Boom. Assumption number two. Look at verse three. Assumption number two is that you have to understand something before worship. That you must kind of intellectually get it before you come and then offer worship to God. And again, this is a supernatural star appearance that started this whole journey that the Magi kind of had some idea about, but the text kind of seems to tell us that this was unique, that they didn't really fully understand what was going on. They, they knew enough to follow it because God seemingly said to follow the star, but they didn't know exactly what was happening. And again, let's, just, let's focus on the idea of a star leading people to Jesus for a second and how supernatural that feels, how strange maybe that sounds. And I've thought that for a while too. I'm like, you know, how believable is it that they followed a star to get to, 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 get to Bethlehem and yada, yada, yada. You know, and then I came to this church two years ago and I was thinking about two things. One, why did I come to this church two years ago? Like what, what led me to make the decision to come here? Like, I guess there's some rational things, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's more equivalent to following a star or a hunch or a feeling or an idea of God, God leading you into something that's kind of mysterious. It's almost closer to that than it was like, oh, well, the economics of living in Salem and Danvers makes a lot of sense. Or, you know, like it, it, wasn't, like a, it wasn't a fully rational decision. It was more of a God is leading me into this. He's leading our family. He's giving us, he's given me and Sarah confirmation of this. And we're going to follow him and see what happens. So I thought about it on that level. And then I thought about some of the stories I've heard from you guys in the last two years. So I've heard some of you guys are new in the last two years coming to this church. Um, Some of you have been coming for a long time. I don't know the exact story of how you got to this church, but 
just from some of you in the last two years who have walked in for the first time, I, it's, it's almost like a star led you here. You know, there's, there's one story of someone who said, you know, I lived in this neighborhood for years and I walked by this building a thousand times. And then one day I looked up and I noticed there was a church here. And then I decided to go in. And he's been coming ever since. And it's like, that sounds, that sounds like almost a supernatural work of God to open your eyes to something. And, and there's a couple of stories like that where it's like, that's how God works. This is how God opens our eyes. You don't really understand it, but you follow and you're called and you go and you show up and you see what happens. You know, and what's interesting about verse three is it says, when King Herod heard about this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled, meaning he didn't understand it. How could there be another king? Uh, how could a star be leading you? Um, and all of Jerusalem, it says, was troubled. They didn't understand it. And certainly the Magi didn't understand it because they went to the wrong place, right? They went to Jerusalem first because they just, this is one of the assumptions in just a second, but they went to the place where they assumed Jesus would be. But the point is, understanding doesn't have to precede worship. As one Christian author says, if God were small enough to be fully understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Assumption number three, verses four through six. This is the one I just was getting at. Assumption number three is that in order to worship, you have to go to a powerful, influential place to, to worship. And so where did the Magi and the wise men first go? They followed the star, but it's almost like they took a slight detour because they just assumed the star was going to take them to Jerusalem. Maybe the star did take them to Jerusalem first, but the assumption that the text leads us to is that they just assumed the king would be in the place of influence, the place of power, the place of prestige in Israel. (coughs) And so they came to Jerusalem. You know, and many, many religions today teach about pilgrimage to a special religious place. So if you're a Muslim, then you go to Mecca. That's the place of pilgrimage uh, in Saudi Arabia. If you're a Mormon, then you go to Salt Lake City, to the Grand Temple, um, to pilgrimage. And a lot of people get married in a very specific temple. And if you're a Christian, you worship God anywhere. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship the one true living God. God is a God of the whole world. And he set up little tiny outposts of his kingdom from the rural parts of Maine to downtown Manhattan to everywhere in between. And you can worship God with other believers anywhere. It doesn't even have to be a a beautiful building with stained glass. I mean, it's kind of nice when it is because we get to see beautiful reminders of it and we get to have a space that's ours. But we could meet in your living room this morning and worship God, sing songs, take the Lord's Supper and worship him genuinely. You don't have to go to the place of power. There's a new king in a new way, and it's not a political leader like Herod or a, power, or a powerful place like Jerusalem to get to this king. He is accessible to all. And so the fourth and final assumption is verses seven through nine. It says, when Herod, after he'd summoned the wise, the wise men secretly, he ascertained from them what time the star appeared, and then he 
sent them to Bethlehem to go and search for the child until they find him. And in verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This last assumption is a little bit more nuanced. But do you see here, Herod is kind of saying, you know, Herod clearly wants to eliminate Jesus because he's a competitor. Um, But Herod thinks that he can simply send people to go find him and then just eliminate the problem and it'll be over. Almost insinuating that this is an easy, practical thing to worship. If I just eliminate the baby Jesus, then all the worship will come back to me and it's easy and practical. And the, the point for us, I think, is that sometimes we also think that worship of the living God is easy and practical. What I mean by that is worship can easily turn into just a task, a task to be completed. You know, I'm going to come to church on a Sunday morning for the hour and really pay attention to everything and even try to sing all the songs and, and be there fully and check the box. And then by Tuesday, kind of go back to what I think is, is an easy way to live. Sometimes that can become how we go. Or we can think it's easy, meaning that we can control our worship um, by simply, simply just uh, keeping it in its own little box and saying, going to Sunday morning church is enough or reading the Bible on my own is enough and containing it. Kind of like how Herod was trying to contain, contain the problem. Um, and maybe you and I see Sunday morning this way as an easy go-to, as something we can control in one area of our life or confine it or not let it rule any other day of our week. And let's, let's let that now kind of carry us into worship reimagined. So basically just take all those assumptions I just gave and flip them on their head. And this is what we're going to finish with this morning. What is true worship? True worship, number one, is when God uses your uniqueness and your own personal experiences to meet you where you are. Magi were pagan, Gentile stargazers. God met them where they were, used their uniqueness and their experiences to open their eyes to something, to send them on a journey so they could see and fall down and worship Jesus. God has made you exactly how you are so that he can open your eyes to something, to send you on a journey so that you can see him fall down and worship Jesus. Uniquely. Uniquely. Live into that. Don't feel like you have to like, become like your favorite Christian before you become a Christian. You know, be the follower of God that you uniquely are created to be while seeing Jesus truly for who he is. Because you are unique. You are how God has made you to be. And live into how, kind of how the Magi came to experience Jesus. In verse 10, you know, I, I just love verse 10 because it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I just, I just wrote down here for the point, joy, 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 joy. Because that's basically what verse 10 says. They, they just had a lot of joy. Because their experience led them to a true encounter with God. 
in a way that probably totally exceeded their, not probably, definitely totally exceeded their expectations. Because there's a whole lot of joy in verse 10. So trust that joy and freedom comes to you when God meets you as you are. Don't try to encounter God through somebody else's experience. Encounter God through your experience. What is true worship number two? Remember we said you don't have to understand everything before worshiping. Um, True faith is faith that is seeking understanding. You're always going to be seeking deeper understanding as, as a human. And again, God's not ever going to be fully understood. That's part of what makes him God. And so, but true faith is faith that is seeking understanding. The Magi fully didn't, surely didn't fully understand what they were seeing, but they used their curiosity as a, as a launching point into worship. You know, there's several historians of the Christian faith who talk about faith seeking understanding. St. Anselm of Canterbury from uh, the 10th and 11th century is one who, who wrote a book called um, the... I don't even know how to pronounce this. It's some Latin thing. But in the book, he describes faith-seeking understanding. And then 700 years before that, St. Augustine says, uh, he coined a Latin phrase, which is translated into English, that says, believe so that you may understand. See the difference there? It's not understand so that you may believe, but believe so that then you can go into understanding. So trust your curiosity. That's the point. Trust your curiosity that it will lead you down the right path to truth. True worship number three, look at verse 11. True worship is not in the place of power. It's not in the place of politics. It doesn't even necessarily have to be in the church building itself. You can encounter God wherever the person of Jesus is present. I think that's something you know, but it's something we need to be reminded of. That when you leave this place... The presence of Jesus doesn't stay here. The presence of Jesus goes with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. They came into the house in verse 11. They saw the child and they fell down and worshipped him. Why did they fall down and worship him? Was it because they came into the house? No, it's because Jesus was in the house. And that's why they fell down and they worshipped him. Because they saw him for who he truly is. You know, I, I mentioned this in a sermon last year about Bethlehem. But, you know, the, the scribes in this passage talk about how Bethlehem um, was where the baby was to be born. And so that's why they then went to Bethlehem. Um, <coughs> Jerusalem was a place of power and influence. Bethlehem is a famous place that you know about today. Bethlehem was not a place that almost anybody knew about back then. So, like, there's, a, there's an example, for instance, like in Joshua chapter 15 verses 20 to 63. There's 43 verses where they're talking about all the different cities of the region of Judea where Bethlehem is located. They're taking 43 verses to talk about all the different places where you can go. It's almost like a travel guide. And Bethlehem is not even mentioned in the 43 verses. It's not a place of influence. It's not a place of power. It's a, it's a relatively obscure place, and that's where Jesus was. And so it's a teachable moment for us. You don't have to go to the place of power to find where God is. God is present where Jesus is, anywhere and everywhere. And the last part of true worship, verse 11 and 12. Again, if, if worship is not meant to be practical and easy, 
then that means that worship naturally must be sacrifice and a little bit of competition. Worship is a conscious choice to sacrifice your life. And it's an entrance into a competitive battle in a spiritual world. Sacrifice. Again, this is where maybe most sermons focus on the gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this is the part where I'll talk about it briefly is the Magi came with gifts to give Jesus out of a sacrificial heart to give from their own experience to Jesus. And God is not necessarily asking you to give gold or fancy perfume to him. He's asking you to give what is sacrificial from you to him to show that your life is dependent on his that you're willing to give everything for him because you see him as higher than whatever material things you have. That's the sacrifice part. How much do you adore Jesus? How much are you willing to give for him and to him? It's not meant to be easy or just another thing to do. It's meant to be your all-consuming passion and joy. And that requires sacrifice. You know, one of the songs we've sung throughout the Christmas season is the song In the Bleak Midwinter. And I love the last lyrics of that song. It says, what else can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what can I give him? I give him my heart. That's what Jesus wants from you. And worship is competition, folks. To worship Jesus means that you are choosing not to worship other things. Herod, was, Herod understood this. Herod understood the competition that Jesus was offering. And we must understand that too. That in order to worship Jesus, we must put aside other gods, other idols, other, comp- other competing interests. Jesus is not one of many gods. He is the one true living God who is unrivaled. Herod, I think he believed that. He he tried to eliminate him. He saw the competition. What I love is in verse 12, you see the magi. They show their cards here. What did they believe? After being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way meaning they chose Jesus over Herod. They saw the competition that worship is. They chose to worship Jesus and not to worship Herod. And we must must make that decision for our own life as well. Is Jesus more or better than anything else? Any other idol? Any other competing interest that is trying to assert itself to supreme in your life, to ultimate in your life? Let me close with this illustration, then we're going to serve the Lord's Supper together to finish. I took uh, Clara to the movies yesterday, my five-year-old daughter. We saw the, the um, thrilling movie Puss in Boots. Very good. I recommend it. But um, as we were sitting there waiting for the movie to start, we were at the movie theater in Danvers, AMC. And AMC has an opening monologue right before the movie starts. It's narrated by Nicole Kidman. And this is what it says. This just struck me. I was like, wow, this is amazing. It says this. Talking about the movie theater. We come to this place for magic. We come to AMC theaters to laugh, to cry, to care. Because we need that, all of us. That indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim and we go somewhere we've never been before. 
not just entertained, but somehow reborn together. Dazzling image on a huge silver screen, sound that I can feel. Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Our heroes feel like the best parts of us, and stories feel perfect and powerful, because here they are. It just made me think, what a poetic thing to say about a movie theater experience. What would we say about a church experience, about a worship experience? We come to this place for worship, so that we can somehow be reborn, right? Let's come to this place to be curious, to find community, to find surprising joy, but primarily to worship to give to God what he alone is deserving of. So let me close us in prayer, and then we'll prepare to serve the Lord's Supper um, as we finish our service. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would um, help something in that to resonate with us this morning, and that as we take the tangible bread and the uh, drink this morning to experience um, through the senses uh, what you've what you've done for us in Jesus, that we would, we would give you our, ourselves, either for the first time or, or renewed today. So meet us during this, this powerful time of serving the Lord's Supper and um, teach us this morning uh, even more deeply what that means. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.